Make your way to Acts chapter 13. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. With this opening act of creation recorded in Genesis 1, God not only spoke physical light into existence, He also established an ideal metaphor for the world that was to come. When Adam and Eve later rebelled against their Creator's law, the world was plunged into moral darkness. And the Bible uses this metaphor, this theme, over and again. The shrill wail of a newborn baby cries against this darkness. And it does not take us long to recognize that our very existence is enveloped in a dread darkness. Everywhere we look, there is tragedy, there is pain, hunger, and disease. There is deprivation and crime. There is abuse and injustice. Natural disaster on a large scale. There is war and the unrelenting enemy of death. Because of sin, humanity is by nature separated from the light of God and the joy of His brilliant splendor in which we were created originally. But mercifully, God's Word does not belittle us with the ridiculous claim that, you know what, things really aren't as bad as they seem. Or that with just a little bit of tweaking, we can bring everything to utopia. It will all be fixed and made right. The Bible reveals, in fact, that the darkness is far more ominous than we perceive. And it comes freighted with eternal consequences. There is a real danger of being separated in the darkness from God forever. But the Bible also reveals that God delights to rescue sinners from moral darkness by bringing the light of His saving grace to us in Christ. This is where John's gospel opens, right along these same lines, using the same melody line from the creative account. John's gospel says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This Word creates all things, and then hear it, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This light, writes John, shines in the darkness. He doesn't mean, obviously, in the physical darkness, which God indeed created, but he means that this light shines in the darkness of a world broken by sin. And then comes Jesus in this same Gospel of John, chapter 8 and verse 12, to say, I am that light. I am the light of the world. As Isaiah prophesied, we looked at it last week, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined, pointing to this Christ who says, I am the light of the world. Simeon, holding this infant Christ in his arms, blesses God, praying, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory, splendor, light to your people Israel. Luke 2. This is extraordinarily good news. 
made all the more glorious by its extension to the Gentiles, to all peoples, spiraling inward as God carefully marked out the lineage of the Messiah through the offspring of Abraham, God designs his salvation light now to turn outward and to reach the Gentiles, to reach all people. And we return today then to Acts 13, witnessing a crucial installment in God's mission to enlighten the Gentiles with this saving grace. Now, someone I heard of this week recently learned that one of their ancestors came over from Europe on the Mayflower. They were thrilled. How what excitement this was to learn of this heritage and this lineage, this connection to the past and to the roots of this country as a nation. We understand the joy, but I ask you, are you a born-again Gentile? Are you a born-again Gentile? Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Have you received that light as one who is not a Jew? This passage should give us infinitely more thrill than if you learned that you were related to the King of England, which might not be all that exciting, I don't know. But if we sense what's going on here with our heritage, this account reveals some of the earliest roots of the evangelization of the Gentiles. This is our heritage. This is where we come from. This light has reached us, and here we are today. The story takes us back to this strange city we know very little about in our setting, in our day, the Roman city of Pisidian Antioch. Remember it from last week as the journey took its way from Antioch of Syria, lots of Antiochs in the ancient world, but Antioch of Syria down to the port city of Seleucia. Paul and Barnabas worked their way out, sent by the church of Antioch to the island of Cyprus. Here at Salamis, they preach the word and then journey through from synagogue to synagogue. We know very little about this mission and what happened across Cyprus. But they stop at Paphos where they run into opposition from Bar-Jesus, this magician, and where Sergius Paulus, a Roman magistrate, responds in faith to the message that they have preached. Another indicator of the message of the light reaching the Gentiles. Then from Paphos, this city about a little over a hundred mile journey by sea up to Perga, a little ways inland up the river. Remembering this whole region is kind of carved out, a low-lying region that falls down to the sea with mountains on three sides. For reasons we don't know, there's nothing recorded about their preaching at Perga or anywhere through this area of Pisidia, this difficult journey, but they're working their way upward up in elevation through the Taurus mountain range, and they arrive eventually at this great city of Antioch, an important leading city. Here, the Apostle Paul will preach a very significant message in the synagogue. Now, what's Pisidian Antioch? As I mentioned, it's an important city. It's on the slopes of the Taurus mountain range, looking down toward the sea from its perspective. And so it was often identified with Pisidia, even though technically it was part of the South Galatian province, and particularly the province of Phrygia, but in the larger region of South Galatia. But it was identified with Pisidia. That's how people would have known it, identified there culturally. As I said, it was a large city, an important cosmopolitan city on a major trade route and thus an ideal place to establish a beachhead for the gospel. Now as we come 
to the second part of chapter 13, we find Paul in a synagogue. Verse 14 says that they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So this strategic city, and now here in a strategic building, the synagogue. This is a place where you do not need to establish common ground. It's all there for you. There's belief in the Old Testament scriptures which point to Jesus Christ. These people are hearing about Jesus Christ prophetically all the time as they're reading the scriptures. They know of sin, they know of the Creator, they know of the fall, they understand all of this, and so it's ideal to come to the synagogue and to proclaim the gospel there. Verse 15, we read that after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, to Barnabas and Paul, saying, brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Let's try to get ourselves sitting there in the synagogue a little bit. This fits the custom of the synagogue. Everything we read here in verse 15. There was a reading from the law. There was a reading from the prophets of the Old Testament scriptures. Then these readings were followed eventually by an exposition based on these readings. If there was anyone qualified to do so. In many synagogues there were not. and So someone would just read the scriptures. But if there was a teacher qualified, they would teach. Either resident or someone visiting. Now, Paul is probably distinguished by his robe as a teacher. And so the word is sent out to him. In some way, his reputation has preceded him. And the invitation is given by the rulers of the synagogue, rulers being plural, saying this was a larger synagogue probably, uh, invitation for him to give the exhortation, to reflect upon the reading of Scripture and to preach a sermon. This was all normal. What is not normal is the sermon that he preached that day. Before we analyze that sermon, as we think about it, contextually it is important to recognize that it is the first of the three sermons that will be recorded in the book of Acts. And it therefore sets the pattern for Paul's evangelization of the ancient world. We see that pattern in coming to large cities and going to synagogues, but we also see the pattern of the message that's preached. And in this way, it reflects the earlier half of the book. The first half of the book, the first message is Acts 2 by Peter. As Peter gives that message, it sort of stands as the essential message of proclamation in the name of Christ. Now we've come in the second half of the book where the leading figure is Paul and here his first message. He's been preaching all along through Cyprus. We've seen this. But now we're getting really what it was that he said in these synagogues. And in this we come back to some of our roots as Gentiles hearing the message of salvation in Christ. So with that in view, let me just say one more thing. It's going to be challenging to those of us who do not know the Old Testament very well. It is challenging because it is geared to those who are Jews. They know their Old Testament scriptures very well. They're schooled in it. It's part of their culture. They just breathe the air of the Old Testament scriptures. So the knowledge we bring of the Old Testament to this sermon will aid us in seeing what Paul is saying, what the message is here that God is indicating, but it is a Jewish sermon. It's given to people familiar with the Scriptures, and so we proceed. We look at its content. 
realizing first that it begins much like Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, establishing common ground with a recitation of God's saving works in Israel. Verse 16, Paul stood up, motioning with his hand and said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. You who fear God, probably not a throwaway phrase, it may not be simply parallel to these Jewish people who are assembled, but it may well be a reference to Gentiles who have followed the Jewish faith in every respect except circumcision, the God-fearers. At any rate, he addresses his audience. There are Gentiles who will hear this message. We learn of that later. Verse 17, he continues, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. That is, what is he saying? God is glorious. He is the glorious, promise-keeping Savior of Israel. He delivered us by His grace from Egypt in order to keep His promises to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He loves His elect people, Israel. And He delivered us even from Egyptian slavery in the miraculous ways that He chose this God of grace. And He sustained us in the wilderness. Remember, as we left Egypt... And our forefathers walked in the desert. God sustained them there. Verse 18, for 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. You see the textual variant. There's difficulty to know uh, the actual reading. The other reading is that he cared for them in the wilderness. What we can, of course, say is he did both, clearly, whichever one is the right text. Or he cared for them both and he put up with them. He endured them these 40 years by his grace. Verse 19, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 400. 150 years. That is, slavery in Egypt, the wilderness wanderings, the initial stages of the conquest in the book of Joshua. All of this takes about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Judges, an ugly period of time, but God gave us Samuel. Remember this? Now, how, how are the Jews hearing this? Come on, Paul, get on with your point. We all know this. They're kind of sitting there with their arms crossed like, why is this guy wasting our time? No. We've got to think Jewish here. These people in this synagogue, I can see some there with their eyes closed and their faces lifted to heaven, just exulting in this truth. We are the chosen people of God who he has cared for all of these years in these miraculous ways, these wonderful ways, this God of promise, this God of care, this God of grace. This is our God. These are our stories as the people of Israel. Getting them thinking, discerning who they are. And he continues that they then asked for a king, verse 21, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Not a happy story. But when he had removed him, when God had removed Saul, God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David a son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. The next verse now is pivotal. It is crucial to the sermon. Of this man's offspring, who are we talking about? David. Of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. 
promised where? Well, there's numerous places in the Old Testament scriptures, but certainly here in the context of David, we must think of 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promises to David a son will rule on his throne forever. There's only one way that's possible. For a son to be born to a father, that son to give birth to a son, to a son, to a son, to a son in the lineage of David that will reign on the throne of David in a never-ending way. One son after another. Or, one son reigns forever. The only way this promise can be fulfilled. Well, as Israel looks at her history, she realizes there's no king on David's throne right now ruling for Israel. There's not been one for a long time. But remember the promise of a Messiah, of a son of David who will reign on David's throne. Paul's listeners were keenly anticipating that an heir of David would spring forth from the stump of Jesse. A sprig would come up from this lineage that would one day again rule. And though they didn't all understand it, he would rule forever. Listen to me, says Paul. He's come. He's here. Jesus Christ. And listeners, I'm sure, are saying, really? What proof on earth do you have of this audacious claim that this promised son of David who would come to bless us has indeed come? Glad you asked, says Paul. Verse 24, he continues in support Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Do you remember this? Where does this go back? Old Testament scriptures. This is Malachi. Before Messiah comes, his forerunner will come and announce that he's here to Israel. This is one of the indicators. The forerunner will come. Now, there were all kinds of people who came and said, I'm Messiah. There weren't too many that came and said, he's Messiah. But Malachi prophesies this, and indeed John the Baptist came and said, He's Messiah. This Jesus, this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, He's come as Malachi promised. And John proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all people. Verse 25, And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not He. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. This unique message, as John came and was highly respected, a man of righteousness and godliness, fulfilling Malachi's prophecy, he comes and proclaims Christ is Messiah. This same Jesus I've been talking to you about, preaches Paul. Now, brothers... Verse 26, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. We've received this message from God. Hear me. We are the chosen people of God. God has promised to send a Savior. Now here's the rub, verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers... Because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. Now, if you're 
awake. You're sitting there in the synagogue. You're not thinking about lunch that is to come, and you're not tired. Your skin's crawling. This one that God had through these ages promised would come to deliver Israel, our leaders in Jerusalem rejected him. Unlike John the Baptist, they said no to this very one. Our Hebrew Bibles tell us that our Messiah will suffer. Isaiah 52 and 53, and we don't really like to think about that, but it does say that the servant will suffer. Our leaders in Jerusalem heard these very prophecies on the Sabbath read in congregation. Yet ironically, they not only missed their meaning, they actually fulfilled those prophecies by lifting their hand against Messiah. We never could figure out how this is going to happen. There's these prophecies that our Messiah will reign from David's throne. That we understand. But how Messiah will also suffer, that's never made any sense. Because when he would show himself, we would receive him as Jews. But here's the answer. There are Jews who reject him. They reject their Messiah and they put him to death. As verse 28 says, though they found in him no guilt worthy of death. They asked Pilate to have him executed. That's one of the most understated verses imaginable. They found no sin in him, no reason for death. They, they, far much more, they found no sin in him at all. And asking Pilate for him to be executed, they demanded it. They were pleading for Jesus to be executed. This is our leaders. This is our rulers. Those that should be leading us to receive our Messiah. They had him executed. And when they had carried out, verse 29, all that was written of him, they laid him down from the tree. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. You notice that phrase, when they carried out all that was written of him. Who's carrying this out? The people to whom Messiah is given. These very people are executing him. All of it as it has been written. Read Isaiah 52, 53, and numerous other texts, but those in particular, which tell us of this suffering servant of God, everything fulfilled, as the prophet said. Executed a criminal high treason so that he dies his body would typically be left by the Romans on the cross to be eaten away by birds but one who suffers that death is buried with the rich this is what the prophet said everything that was written was fulfilled in this one Jesus Here's where the story turns. Verse 30, but God, God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. We hear echoes here of 1 Corinthians 15, don't we? We have the death evidenced by the burial. We have his resurrection evidenced by the witnesses who saw him in his resurrected form. After we had killed him, after all that had been written about him in the scriptures was fulfilled by us, 
Those to whom he was given, God raised him from the dead. In fulfillment of God's promises, Jesus is resurrected, authenticating that Jesus was indeed Messiah. And we bring you, verse 32, Paul continues, the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. This is how it works. This is how a son of David can rule on David's throne forever. You have one who has been risen from the dead, never to die again. Now, are we just making this up? Is this some late-breaking concept that Paul comes up with? No. This also has been revealed in the Old Testament Scriptures by the prophets. Verse 33, it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul does not ask us here to simply take his word for it. The Scriptures give this prophecy that you are my son, I have begotten you. This is a quotation from Psalm 2, and here's where we really have to labor as Gentiles to understand what's going on. Uh, It's difficult, but Psalm 2 was written to celebrate the installation of the Davidic king seated on David's throne. Paul argues that Jesus is the greater fulfillment of that psalm. A king comes and reigns on David's throne, and God says, you are my son. This day. You are the one who stands between me and the nation. You are the king on the throne of the theocracy. But, says Paul, there was a greater son in view. Now, Jesus did not become God's son when he ascended to the throne of God, but he is recognized as God's son in a unique way when he completes his redemptive work and takes his seat in heaven, no longer as suffering servant, but now as king of kings beside God the Father. If there's any doubt as to Jesus' resurrection, think of verse 34. And as for the fact that He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. This is the Son of David who will come and reign forever. I'm giving you that promise now in Jesus. He's the answer to this prophetic word. This is drawn from Isaiah 55, verse 34. It asserts that God's promises are for Israel, but what is that blessing of David? It is the blessing of this son to rule on this throne forever. The only way that's possible is that this son would be incorruptible. That also the Scriptures prepare us for. Verse 35, Therefore he says also in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Now, in some sense, that's talking about David. He'll not see corruption as his spirit goes into the presence of the Lord. But not in the ultimate sense, argues Paul. Think on this promise. God says of David, you will not see corruption. We know David is corrupted. He died a long time ago. His body has been buried in Jerusalem and his body is corrupted. Verse 36, David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep. He died and was laid with his fathers and he saw corruption. His body was corrupted. But 
Verse 37, he whom God raised did not see corruption. So the fulfillment of Psalm 16.10, that David will not see corruption, is actually fulfilled in his son, the greater Messiah, who has been raised from the dead before his body ever saw corruption. And let me tell you, people of the synagogue, says Paul, I'm here to say I saw him. We saw him in resurrected form. I'm here to witness to the fact that he is indeed alive. He defeated death. His witnesses are running throughout the world right now telling everybody that he's alive. They were all cowering in a corner until then, but now he lives. And we're here to proclaim that the promise to David has been fulfilled. We have an incorruptible king. So what's the point? Verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, he comes down now to his conclusion. Brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. It's a tough phrase to translate, and the translations differ a bit, but the point is fairly clear. The law of Moses... And the violation of the law of Moses is really assumed here. He doesn't say anything about that. He doesn't seek to bring them to a knowledge of condemnation before the law. Apparently that's to be understood. But the emphasis here is the law of Moses condemns lawbreakers. We know under the law of God that we are lawbreakers, and we know that the law condemns lawbreakers. Therefore, the law has no power to free sinners. But Jesus' death and resurrection are a gift from God that delivers sinners from the bondage of their sin. If this good news is true, there's only one thing to fear. Verse 40, Beware therefore lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Here he quotes Habakkuk in the Old Testament Scriptures. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. That again is making their skin crawl. We don't catch it. But Habakkuk was offering this prophecy to the Israelites who were just about to be taken into captivity in Babylon because they were rejecting God's word. The same danger is here for you, he says to these in the synagogue. Jesus has come in fulfillment of prophecy to save his people from their sin, and you stand in danger of rejecting that word. And there will be a horrifying captivity of soul and body forever for those who reject this salvation. Now, thinking on this sermon, and we must do so only briefly, but we see how gospel-centered it is. The death indicated by the burial of Jesus, the resurrection indicated by the witnesses who saw him in resurrected form. The resurrection looms much larger in this sermon than it does in many of our witnessing schemes today. You look at many tracts, somewhere in the range of half of them won't even mention the resurrection of Christ. Much of the others will simply mention it in passing. For Paul, it was at the center of the message here. I don't think this is given to us simply as a primer on methodology and evangelism. He's calibrating his message to a synagogue audience, and it's unique in that sense. However, the resurrection looms large in the account. 
You must understand that Jesus rose from the dead in accordance with the prophecies that had gone before, his own and the Old Testament prophets. God is indicating here is the Savior from the darkness. Here is the light. All of the sin and destruction and horror that we face in this world is oriented to our alienation from God and the moral darkness into which this universe has been plunged. Jesus is the light of the world. How do I know? He beat death. He dealt a death blow to death and he gives life now. There's a certain kind of sermon here, and I've thought again this week as I do week after week after week. There's many churches in our day, evangelical churches, they can't share this sermon. They'll never preach this passage because it's long, it's complicated, it demands a knowledge of the scriptures perhaps for people to be right on top of it the whole way through. This is pure gold, this sermon. And what we find here, I won't go long into this, but Paul's aim in preaching is clearly not here. Let's find a way that we can package the message such that it is pleasing to the ears of those who hear. Dennis Johnson writes wisely on this in the context of our day of relativizing the Scriptures in a pluralistic world to simply be what people want it to be. He writes, I think, well in reflection here that Paul's aim in preaching was not to contribute to people's emotional health. It was not to train them how to cope with stress. In fact, in verse 40 and 41, he puts a little stress on them, doesn't he? Quite a bit of it. And when they contemplate that they killed their Messiah, more stress. It's not to talk themselves out of despair or to cultivate family relationships, as important as that might be. The apostles' message was good news, eliciting great joy in those who believed it. But their goal was not to make, that is, Paul and Barnabas, their goal was not to make their hearers feel better. It was to tell the truth about God and His plan, about humanity and our sin, about Christ and His victory, about the present opportunity for faith and the future certainty of judgment. And in that message, there's grief, there's anger, there's joy. But it's the truth straight up. And as I mentioned that, it merges now into the follow-up here on the response to this message. Verse 42, the kingdom-clashing response to this sermon is described. Verse 42, they went out. The people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. I mean, they're basically grabbing Paul and Barnabas by the robe and saying, you guys got to come back here. We've never heard the Scriptures unfolded for us this way. Maybe you've been there before somewhere, but you're hearing the teaching of God's Word and you're saying, I've got to get this. The Bible is making sense to me like it never has before. And that's what they're saying. You've got to come back. How the Old Testament promises of a suffering and conquering Messiah point to Jesus of Nazareth. You know about Him. You're teaching us. Will you come back again? And Paul says to them, or as they respond, verse 43, And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Now it indicates 
some were following the light that they had received and were being urged to keep walking toward the light. I won't go long on this, but you'll notice what Paul does not say. Oh, you all who are responding here, I want you to come over here. You stand right over here. Let's all bow our heads, and I want you to repeat after me. And we'll make sure you're in the kingdom. He doesn't say that, does he? What does he say? They've heard the gospel. They're responding enthusiastically. He has no idea if this is genuine faith or not. And so he says to them, keep persevering in this light. Keep coming to this light. Continue in the grace of God. Keep searching. He seems much more dependent on the saving efforts of Jesus than on his efforts as an evangelist to close the deal. He's simply saying, here's the truth. Keep coming to the truth. Verse 44, the Sabbath, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Certainly hyperbole, but also certainly a great number of people. It's as if people from out, throughout the city, is probably the idea, individuals from throughout the city are coming and descending on this synagogue. This has to be thrilling. They're coming to hear the explication of the Old Testament scriptures as they point to Christ once again. But, and here's the clash, verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. Their motivation is clearly delineated here. They're jealous. They want to gain the show. And they object to this message of Paul. Arthur Miller, in The Death of a Salesman, writes about the salesman. He says this. It's an interesting phrase. But he says, A salesman is a man way out there in the blue, riding on a smile in a shoe shine. And when they start not smiling back, that's an earthquake. Well, Paul is no salesman. And for the Christian witness, rejection is never an earthquake. Rejection is expected. There's kingdom fighting kingdom here. It's not an earthquake because we don't ride on a smile and a shoe shine simply selling our wares. We ride on the victory of Christ's conquest over death. And so, yes, there will be rejection. There will be massive rejection to the witness of Christ. Verse 46, and Paul and Barnabas respond. They spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Now that is an epoch-turning statement. We have seen it breaking out, this witness to the Gentiles, in various places through the book of Acts. But here it is now, in great form. There is a response on the part of the Gentiles, and we will turn to them and proclaim the message of Christ. For the Bible also prophesies this, verse 47, The Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Given initially, to the Messiah, Isaiah 49, verse 6, by prophecy, now applied to these witnesses, they are going to be a light to the Gentiles and to proclaim the message there. If you caught it earlier today, as we read through Isaiah 49, and verse 6, it is too light a thing 
that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations. This is too good a thing to just save the Jews. Or to demand that all Gentiles become Jews in that complicated process. I will send you Messiah to the nations. What is Paul saying? Here we are. We're proclaiming this message to the Gentiles who have been left out at arm's length, but now the gospel coming directly to them. And how did they respond? How are you responding as a Gentile who's been born again? Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I wish we had the time to sing everything we sang before today and do it all again in light of this. We have received the grace of God in the light of the Gospel. Verse 49, the Word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Gentiles are responding to the message. This is a crucial event in the book of Acts. The success of the Gospel among the Gentiles and those appointed to eternal life believing on a wide scale. Does that phrase trouble you? Those appointed to eternal life. It really shouldn't, and it certainly has troubled all of us at some point, but the Bible simply says those appointed to eternal life believed. The only way anyone can be saved is by an act of God, and that's the point. Does that mean these people are robots? No, we see the strong appeal of Paul to his hearers. You must believe, and that's the message we take. Never is the message, we're going to figure out here who's appointed to eternal life, so let's, let's go through some routine here. It's really a waste of time to talk to any of the others of you. You never see that in the New Testament. Never. But you see, without blushing, those appointed to eternal life believe. Every one of you in this synagogue must believe. Christ is your Messiah and you must trust Him or you will reject Him and be damned. That's their message. This is our great hope indeed, that God has appointed some to eternal life because in this darkness no one would ever come to the light on their own. The light must come to them from God. And so there are those who, as verse 48 says, came to eternal life believing and the word spreads. Well, the Jews don't like it. Verse 50, they incited the devout women. Now when it says the Jews, by the way, there's many Jews that are responding, but it's the leadership there in the synagogue who are inciting the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. They expected this. They're not salesmen with a smile and a shoe shine. They have the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a kingdom-assaulting message. And there's people out there that belong to Jesus, and they're going to find them. Not in our town, says the leaders. They, on their part, verse 51, shook off the dust from their feet against them and went about 80 miles to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I think there probably is a joy in God that we only experience when we've experienced the rejection of Christ. You say, why don't I love God more? Experience rejection for Jesus and you will. I'm not saying it's an equation, but it certainly is a path to greater joy. To know that I identify with the rejected Christ. 
Not because we're obnoxious in our witness. There's no joy in that. But because people are truly offended by the faithful dissemination of the truth. Our joy emanates from this passage. I hope we grasp it. God's eternal purpose to shine the light of Israel's Messiah upon Gentiles has been realized in our lives. Maybe someday in glory we will be able to connect the dots and see how the light went from Syrian Antioch to Pisidian Antioch and from there to us here today. Removed 2,000 years Half a world away, the Jews here laboring in the South Galatian Plateau, that light coming to the Gentiles, and it's reached us. Somehow through the centuries of effort, that message has been shared with you and with me. Not as a national religion or an ethnic cult, but as a message of salvation light passed from one believer to the next. Jesus lives. And in His life, there is forgiveness of sin, bearing the wrath of the sinner, the wrath of God against the sinner. He has died to pay that penalty, and there's life in Him. That message has reached us. The joy of realizing the profound plan of God that has operated through the centuries with promise and fulfillment, and that fulfillment including the message of light to the Gentiles. What joy there is to realize the light has shined in the darkness. The darkness has not prevailed. And I pray that my spirit resonates with yours when I say, and that message has been received. By faith in Jesus Christ, the light has come. It is effused into our soul. We see now the glories of our God. And we know now the forgiveness of sin. And if you're not there, There's no such light in you. There's no such joy in Jesus Christ. Something has to happen. You need your eyes to be opened by the Lord. And I would say to you, as Paul did, keep coming to the light. Respond in faith today to the salvation rich and free in Jesus Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we give you thanks for your amazing grace. We thank you for the wonder of this message that was preached so long ago and that its light has reached us. May we rejoice in it as we close in song in the name of our Savior.